Quiet. Hear that? Shh. The sound of silence. The sound of being alone. Just you and your thoughts. No sounds of joy. No sounds of happiness. Comforting, settling noises are gone. Now it's nothing but deafening silence. Since September 15th, 2011, John Skelton has been behind bars. He lives in segregation in a small cell inside Bellamy Creek Correctional Facility. That's in Ionia, Michigan. If you remember, he was incarcerated not for murder, but for unlawful imprisonment. And to this day, there's no proof of murder. John's existence has turned into a lonely one. It's strange, but being placed alone, away from everyone, was surely done as a punishment, and probably for his own protection. But the almost absurd part is that solitude seemed to be the one thing that John craved the most. Maybe this is ideal, at least for him. The quiet, uninterrupted moments to himself. John Russell Skelton was born November 22, 1971. He celebrated his 39th birthday just four days before Black Friday 2010. He grew up in Jacksonville, Florida, and went to Fletcher High School, which is located less than a mile away from the Atlantic Ocean. John's mother and father are still there, just about five miles away from the high school. After high school, John joined the Army and moved around a lot. He was in Washington, D.C. for a while, and at one point he worked at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. It's in Bethesda, Maryland. There was Anchorage, Alaska, a short stay in Framingham, Massachusetts, California, and, of course, Morency, Michigan. He would later become a truck driver. John would marry Tanya in 2002. Both had already been married and divorced once before. Tanya's first husband filed for divorce after she was charged with criminal sexual conduct. According to Tanya and to many others, John was aware of this fact before he ever asked Tanya to marry him. The oldest of the boys, Andrew, was born November 20, 2001. Two years later, Alexander joined him. And again, two years later, there was Tanner. John's family was now complete, but was he? For a number of years, he had steady work, and Tanya stayed at home taking care of the children. But towards the end, he lost his job and was home a lot. The struggle began, and the awful happened. Like I said, John is tucked away from society. The public last saw him June of 2011. He was defending himself in court during his divorce hearing with Tanya. Hear those chains? That's John. He's walking to his defense table during that hearing, acting as his own lawyer. Uh, how do you know that your husband knows where the kids are at? Do you believe the children are safe? No, because they're not living with their parents. Just so you can picture it, John, who, by the way, is a smaller guy. He's 5'7", about 130 pounds. Not bald, but balding. And he's standing there. He's standing there at the table, asking questions, like a lawyer would. Are you okay with uh, not seeing your kids anymore? And Tanya, she's up at the stand. It's a strange sight. 
What John did was put Tanya on the spot about the kids, asking her in the courtroom if she thought the kids were safe. You heard her. They aren't safe unless they're with a parent. The divorce would be finalized. Since then, John has been out of view. Interactions with the media very scarce. But back in February of 2011, before the divorce hearing, but after he was already incarcerated for wrongful imprisonment, he did do a phone interview with WDIV NBC Detroit's Sandra Ali. The quality of the phone's audio in prison is not the best, so I'll help walk you through the conversation. But he started with the only emotion he would show throughout the entire interview. What John said was, that's what I call them. My bubbies. I love them. Tearful words from an upset father. A man now sitting in jail because he made his kids disappear. Have you hurt the boys in any way, shape, or form? Other than other than it was strangers. Well, I'd rather not say strangers. You know, I mean, okay. they're, with, they're with a family right now that you know, uh, it's 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 not me. I think that's the only disservice that I've done to the boys. I haven't hurt them. No. John tells Sandra that he hasn't hurt the boys. That the boys are with a family. That he knows. The ultimate question is, who is this family, right? That's what everyone is wondering. His answer is vague. This organization that you you said you gave the boys to, is it a foster family? First of all, it's the one thing that I wish I could tell everybody and put in big bold letters, turn up the volume as high as you can. I did not give my kids to anyone. They give my kids away, okay? But yes, yes, um, I have to say yes on that question. Can you tell me where? For right now, this is a good place for the police. The boys are better off with their foster family right now. John, being John, made this entire thing confusing. But the short of it was he admitted to giving the children to a quote-unquote foster family, saying the kids were better off with them. He would also say, not in this part of the interview, but later, that he met four people that went by the names of Joanne, Virgil, Sue, and Elijah, saying he knew those weren't their real names. But John said he met them at J.D.'s truck stop in Niles, Michigan, back in September of 2010. It was then that he started the process of handing the boys over to them. John gave the group his home address so they could meet Andrew, Alexander, and Tanner. And eventually they did, according to John. He allowed the boys to sleep over with the new friends Thanksgiving night. In a different interview, he would name the group that he allegedly gave the children to. He called them the Underground Sanctuary. According to John, he thought the sleepover would be a trial run, and that he would get them back right afterwards. But... After handing the kids over, that was it. He never saw them again. With all of the resources of the FBI, they can't find this foster family. I think it's a vetted organization that uh, knows what it's doing. If you couldn't make that out, he said, he thinks the organization that has the kids knows what they're doing. We covered our tracks well. They covered their tracks well. John's hubris is now starting to show. 
The story that he's trying to sell is that he gave the boys to a family that's tied to an underground group that apparently takes in children. Well, this gave it the Amish Mennonite, or there was some reorganized Mormons. So according to John, this underground group, and you can't see that I'm using the good old-fashioned air quotes right now, but they're Amish or Mennonite or reorganized Mormons. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily call any of those groups underground. John has told reporters that he misses his sons, that once he's out of prison, the people holding Andrew, Alexander, and Tanner will know how to reach him and how to get the kids back to him. He also said later that he didn't try to kill himself. Remember, he originally told doctors and nurses in Toledo that the morning the boys disappeared, he tried to hang himself. But it failed and instead hurt his foot. Tanya's longtime friend, Kathy Herrera, says that whole thing was an act of some kind. The rope that he had, they said, it was so long for where he was going to jump off, he wouldn't have hung himself. This is just another example of John painting a picture of what happened one day, and then the next, when he's asked to paint it again, he paints something brand new or completely different. John told investigators that, quote, the children will hibernate until they graduate, end quote. That's an eerie statement. Hibernate. Not a comforting word under these circumstances. He also told authorities that he wrapped each child in a blanket, gave them a stuffed animal, placed them in his van, and drove them away. To where? We don't know. If his cell phone records prove anything, it's that he drove from his house down to a holiday city, Ohio, and back in under two and a half hours, which we've already covered, but were the kids in the van the entire time? Was there an exchange in Holiday City or somewhere else close by? I mean, we don't know. The Amish theory is intriguing. We're checking out. The police definitely have. Um, one of the theories that's floated around is uh, that the boys were dropped off to the Amish, right? Yes. Um, is this something that's being pursued, if you can talk about it, or has been pursued, or even is it feasible? I would say anything's feasible. Because the case is still active, Detective Lieutenant Jeremy Brewer couldn't go into detail about that. Tanya's friend Kathy says the Amish are a possibility, but not one that should be taken too seriously. I just can't imagine them accepting children. I do know a few Amish through some other friends, and we go there to buy their goodies that they make and stuff. They're so open and, and loving. I know that they would love children, but I can't imagine them just saying, well, we'll just keep these kids for you. I, I just, I can't imagine that. These kids that have been exposed to all the modern, modern amenities, right? I mean, Yeah, and they're bound to say things, you know? Um, those are sharp kids. They weren't stupid. They, they knew who their family was. They could say, you know, well, why can't I see my mom? Many people have brought the Amish up to me. They are simple, gentle, God-fearing people who have integrated themselves into modern society through work and proximity. And while they're integrated into modern society, they don't live that way at all. Most of us know this, but to be clear, they don't use electricity in their houses, so obviously no TV, no radio. They can read newspapers, but a lot of their life we just don't know about. In the areas surrounding Morency, there are tons of Amish people. In fact, in Indiana, which isn't too far away, 
two of the top three most heavily populated Amish areas, well, they're there. In fact, there's over 20,000 people living in some of those settlements. In Ohio, there's even more. So the Amish story, it could be true, couldn't it? Obviously, Tanya's friend Kathy isn't sold on it, but she doesn't know for sure, right? Because the police can't tell me much more about this part of their investigation, I'm actually more intrigued by it. I'll be going deep into this theory soon. But back to John. He said he wasn't sure if the boys and their new foster family were in state, but he says his not knowing was by design. If he didn't know, then nobody else could know. And the person that he was trying to keep all this information away from? Tanya. In an interview that I found, John told another reporter that he doesn't want Tanya to lose faith. Even though this turned into a murder investigation, that he would never, ever hurt those boys. John says that Tanya knows that. Thanksgiving night, John wrote the following on his Facebook account. May God and Tanya forgive me. And when he was asked about that post later, he said that he wrote it because he was spiraling out of control. He was depressed. Said that Tanya was playing with his emotions. And during that interview, he also threw out blame to Chief Weeks, saying that the chief wouldn't take a report from John when he had complaints about Tanya. Also in this interview, which I don't have the rights to, because if I did, you'd be hearing it now, John gets very emotional when he's asked about his message to Tanya and what it would be. He said, quote, We loved each other for 10 years, and in that 10 years, we knew each other pretty well. And she knows her gut feeling, and not what people tell her. They think I hurt those babies. And now he's really emotional, almost hard to understand through the tears, but he goes on to say, I didn't hurt those babies, at all. There's a long pause, and then he says, I was a victim, just like she was. They were taken from me, too. This is so confusing. I'm right there with all of you. I'm telling the story, and I'm confused. Based on the conversations I've had with various people along the way, the most common thought is, unfortunately, the kids are likely dead. But nobody, not a single person, has ruled out the boy's survival. It's not likely, but still, it's possible. All right, let's take a quick break. A word and a thought that I really haven't gotten into yet is revenge. That's what this whole case seems to be about. John's stories are confusing and hard to follow, and at this point I'm wondering if it's difficult for him to organize and keep track of his own thoughts. I hope to have a chance to ask him that. But he maintained in all the interviews with the media that Tanya was sexually abusing their own children. And in one report, he said, the boys came to him one day and said, Mommy was sexing us. According to John, Tanya wouldn't discuss those claims with him. So his course of action was to get the kids away from her. John would also say later that he feels like he may have been duped by the organization that took his kids that maybe they weren't honest with him. Huh, imagine that. He seemed to think that the group he met at a truck stop just a couple of months earlier were trustworthy people. So worthy of trust that he would hand over his three most prized possessions, his three young sons. I've never met John, never spoken with him. I've never sat across from him and looked him in his eyes never had the chance to observe him or study him in person. I've read all about him, 
his actions, words, and thoughts. I try not to let opinions of those that I've spoken to about John, in this case, cloud a fresh perspective, and I think I do a decent job. But where I sit, right now, I'm finding it really, really hard to believe that a moral compass drove him to remove Andrew, Alexander, and Tanner from the lives of so many people that love them. It's tough not to draw the conclusion that John did this out of revenge, and revenge alone. There are a couple of theories that I've been batting around inside my head. See, it all goes back to episode one, when we talked about John and Tanya and how their marriage unraveled, when John decided to take the kids to Florida. He ordered the oldest two boys in the van, and they're both crying because they see their little brother crying. They hear me yelling. Now, John posed that whole thing as a vacation. But if you remember, Tanya said John had reached out to a lawyer before leaving Michigan with the boys. He was not leaving right then because I found out later he had an appointment with an attorney. Now, if you're just going on a family vacation, why are you having an appointment with an attorney? So he'd already made up his mind. I mean, he was going to take the kids and divorce Tanya, right? So that threw up red flags to Chief Weeks, to myself. Something happened along the line, whether... John's story about sexual abuse was true, or maybe, just maybe, and follow me here, John went to his high school reunion during the summer of 2010. I want to say it was just 20 years, something like that anyway. Just a short time before September 13th, when the whole Florida thing happened, could he have reconnected with a woman there? He let the boys call me to wish me happy birthday. And they're telling me, um, you know, we've been swimming, and we this, and we're at, We're at daddy's friend's house, and I'm like, oh, you're not staying with grandma? No, we're staying at Hillary's house, and and her daughter, she takes us to the the pool here. And and I knew who Hillary was because she's one of the friends he had talked about when he came home from his class reunion. Could that have been the motivation to leave town and start over with a new life? Chief Weeks says, hold your horses. Was there a romantic connection between John and Hillary? I mean, was that avenue explored at all? What I'll tell you is that we spoke to any, virtually anyone that had any connection with John. So did we speak to her? Yes. I think that people, are, it's natural in the position of wanting to know all the answers to look at what you know and try to connect the dots of what you know and realizing there's dots missing. So I don't know that, you know. That I have all the dots? Right. What I can tell you about Hillary is that I tried to track her down, many times, but those attempts came up empty. Investigators have told me, though, that road is a dead end. Either way, the kids are gone, and yet again, only John can answer those questions. John's supporters are few and far between, almost exclusively family. There's not a lot of caring left from those Morency. The community of Morency will never lose their memory of these three children. They will lose their memory of you. Poignant message from Judge Margaret Noe. But she's wrong. Although we remember the boys, we also remember John Russell Skelton.
Coming up, reporter Sandra Ali and I head to Amish country. If someone brought children here, would the Amish community, would they take them in? Yeah, what are you doing with this? We're recording. Why? Because we are, we work at Channel 4. No, we don't do that. We don't do anything, sorry. Okay. Okay. No recording. That's coming up on the next Shattered. If you have any information about this case, you can reach Investigator Jeremy Brewer at 517-636-0689, and that's right into my desk phone. If you'd like to see and hear more about the Skeleton Boys and what's going on in Morency and how we're covering the ongoing search, go to shatteredpodcast.com. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Shattered Podcast. Last thing, please share this podcast with someone who might want to hear it. Investigators believe that the more people that know about this case, the better. Maybe it will help. And also rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts. That's one of the best ways to make sure other people are aware of the show. Thanks, and see you next time.